Welcome to Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Mine is Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan. I have no idea what's going to happen today on the show, Aaron. It's been quite a week. We don't know what football games are going to take place. We've got coaching vacancies. People are getting fired. There's some playoff rankings. I guess there's a championship game in Atlanta coming in a couple of weeks. I honestly don't know what to expect on the show this week. I honest. also just ate shit trying to sit at the desk. So, <laughs> uh, Aaron did fall down, um, tripping over something. Uh, there is evidence of it at some point, so we might try to get that out to you guys. Um, so today on the show, Josh McQuiston is going to join us. And SEC fans don't know that name necessarily, but he is uh, he has managed and run the rival site covering the Oklahoma Sooners, Soonerscoop.com, for as long as I've known him, over 15 years. And I thought, what better way to get to know Shane Beamer, the new head football coach in the SEC for South Carolina. So you South Carolina fans, you're going to want to stick around for that. You're going to hear from him a little bit later on in the show. You and I, Aaron, will give our thoughts on Shane Beamer as well. We've got an update on the Vandy coaching search. We will get to, of course, the the fringe element bowl, which normally is Vandy and Tennessee, which could happen this week. Coaches getting, as I mentioned, coordinators getting fired, evolve or die is what we're calling that segment. We've got Kentucky, Tennessee, LSU that have big decisions coming. We've got a championship game that's set in Atlanta. But, of course, Aaron, playoff rankings came out on Tuesday night. And not a whole lot has changed. I mean, not a whole lot at all. Has this ever happened before? Has Have things stayed this stagnant for this long ever in the history of the college football playoff? I, I don't believe so. Now, there was Cincinnati and Georgia both dropped a spot. So that did happen. Georgia at nine. Alabama one, Notre Dame two, Clemson three, Ohio State four, A&M and Florida at five and six. Iowa State jumped to number seven. Cincinnati fell to eight. Georgia fell to nine. Miami's at 10. Um, and I do not believe there's another SEC. Oh, that's right. Missouri crept into the rankings at 25. My Missouri Tigers, Aaron. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, Texas A&M, they were probably the most impressive team of anybody last week. I mean, Ohio State was dominant. Clemson was dominant. Alabama was dominant. Florida was pretty solid against Tennessee. I, you know, but A&M's win, I think, over Auburn, 300 yards rushing. I think A&M is by far the most impressive. But I don't see how you move them up. So here we are with the same six teams. So your heart still wants Florida at number four, but you you understand why the rankings are the way that they are, and they have to be this way for now. Oh, totally. Yeah, I don't have you know. Listen, I think Florida's really good. I think Alabama beats them. We'll get to Florida and Bama in just a second because that's the SEC championship game. But I mean, I think Florida's really, really good. I think I don't know. I think Ohio State, Florida, A and M are all about the same. You can make a case one way or the other on any of these guys. So I, I, you know, I would lean Florida right now, but that's going to work itself out when they play Alabama. So I understand the the frustration with A&M fans. That's what I was going to ask you about because with the, with the whole Ohio state thing and then the potential of, we don't know what the rest of their season is going to look like. And they're just lacking a lot of games compared to people in the sec. So what do you, what are you feeling like if you're an A&M fan? So Ohio state, Michigan got canceled on Tuesday. And if that game, if they figure out a way to play a game, which again, I think we're we're taping this on Wednesday morning. So my my vote would be if I'm in the big 10 to just move some stuff around like the SEC and ACC have done, get a Maryland team in there, push the Rutgers game back or whatever, because that game doesn't matter. Give Ohio state a game that they can play so that they can then get into the the big 10 championship game. And if they're seven and oh, and they're big 10 champs, I think you just have to evaluate them 
on that. And, and that's only a couple of games less than A&M. It, that's not going to make A&M fans happy. They're going to be pissed off about that. They're going to think their 9-1 and record is better. But they also just, their, their Ole Miss game this week, which is a nice resume win, is postponed or canceled or whatever that's going to look like. We don't know if they're going to play Tennessee. So uh, to me, it's about Ohio State getting enough games. And if they get to 7-0, and they're going to get in over A&M. If they're the Big Ten champs, they're going to get in over A&M. Another question for you. With moving games around and make sure that as a conference you're getting a team in or giving a team the best chance to win, what does that do to the – I was trying to think through this in the f- way down the line future. What are the end of seasons going to look like? I mean, I, I guess if games aren't being canceled for a legitimate reason, you can't just knock someone off your schedule and put someone else on to put you in a better position. But are there long-term repercussions or pros of – things changing around at the end of the season like this? I, I don't know about long-term. And I actually, I, I do think people are just going to... The ACC just decided not to play games with Clemson and Notre Dame on the final weekend of the of the regular season. They're like, yeah, you guys have already clinched. You're not going to play. So, like, right now, BYU and Coastal Carolina just gave us the best game of the weekend, and they scheduled it, like, 48 hours in advance. Like, we, I think your question is, to me, let's learn how to make tougher schedules more rapidly and more flexibly moving forward in the future. There's no reason why we can't schedule tougher games like two years out or one year out, or as we've seen this season, like two days out. Like I don't, but what we don't the, need to, we don't need to schedule games 27 years in advance. No, it doesn't happen. Is there ever a situation though, that this team, a team comes to another team. They're like, Hey, yo, can you please play us so we can beat you? Because we really want to make it to the playoffs. And the other team's like, no, that's what, that's what Herb street accused Michigan of doing. Basically. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I mean, listen, I understand A&M fans frustrations. I think Ohio state would get in over them if they were the big 10 champs in seven and zero. And I actually don't think that's wrong. That's the problem. Like, I don't think A&M fans, like, I, I know your win over Florida is going to be really good, but if Florida's got two losses, they lose to Bama, and we can kind of transition into the SEC championship game matchup here with Alabama and Florida. But but I, I think, I, I don't know, I think Ohio State would is a better football team than A&M right now if they played. I would take Ohio State slightly. I think Vegas would favor Ohio State slightly. I think they don't have a better quote-unquote resume necessarily, but that's not that's not what the job is the job isn't who's got the best resume the job is who's the better team and I would pick Ohio State to win that game right now yep that's what the committee's job so if you're not just going based on resume and the million factors they take into account Ohio State stays the crazy thing is Notre Dame's the one that I think like if I'm A&M or Florida I think we can beat Notre Dame I don't know if we can beat Ohio State but I think we can beat Notre Dame just because of like scheme the way that they play like matchup wise those two teams specifically against Either A&M or Alabama against Notre Dame? Yeah, I think A&M's personnel, the defensive line, the offensive line, their power rushing attack, I think sets up a versatile quarterback who can move, sets up against Notre Dame. And I don't know if Notre Dame can score with Florida. Again, I think it's they'd be all great games. I think they'd be fantastic games. I just think, you know, we're, we're guessing here. I would guess Florida or A&M over Notre Dame. I would take Ohio State over probably a and I don't know if I would take, I think I would take Ohio state over Florida. Ask me that in two weeks or three weeks after we see him against Bama. But why do you say that? Um, I, I think Florida's offense is the best offense, maybe in America, the best quarterback, maybe in America right now, you're going to have to score to beat them. I think Ohio state can score with Florida. Okay. Um, I think their defenses are similar. I think A&M's got the better defense, but I don't know if their offense is as good. Like, I, you know, we can go round and round and round on this. Like right. Notre, Dame's, Notre Dame probably has the best defense of the group. 
but they don't have the explosive weapon read on offense to score. So I like we can just go it, in circles all day. Yeah, like to me, it's still Bama Clemson. <laughs> still Bama one, Clemson two, and then You've like been three. pretty tried and true on that. Yeah. Um, so Alabama and Florida are in the SEC championship game, and it's the tenth time that they have met. It is the thirteenth appearance for both teams, which means they've combined for twenty six of the 58 total slots in the SEC championship game. Do you know how many teams, how many times that Texas A&M, Kentucky, Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, Mississippi State, and South Carolina combined have been to Atlanta? I don't, but I bet you do. Two. (laughs) South Carolina's been once, and Mississippi State's been once, and they've been in the league for a combined 154 years. You hate to see that. In 154 tries, they have as many SEC championship game appearances, too, as Missouri does. Wow. My Missouri Tigers. Your Missouri Tigers. Yep. I can't wait to talk about this. Yes, we will have fun with that. This uh, is so, new. Uh, Alabama's 8-4 and four in Atlanta. Florida is 7-5 and five in Atlanta. All nine of those losses have come against each other. So neither team has ever lost to another team in the SEC championship game except each other. Uh, Bama has won the last three. And I think Bama's going to win another one. <laughs> so, uh, but here's the debate. I, I, I threw this out on Twitter and I got, I got stuck in the Florida, Alabama Twitter sewer that I claim I enjoy. You love the Twitter sewer. I think I would take Kyle Trask over Mac Jones. I think I would take Kyle Pitts over Devonte Smith. I think I would take Dan Mullen's scheme and play calling over Sarkeesian's scheme and play calling. But the running game in the offensive line for Alabama, I think, is far better and far more dynamic and far more powerful. Maybe the best offensive line Saban's ever had. So while I would take the quarterback, you know, the star receiver and the scheme at Florida, I would take the offense for Alabama. And you would not believe how much that pissed people off, like <laughs> like murdered your child or something. Alabama fans were like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I t- it's in the tweet. I said I would take Alabama's offense. I don't, I don't know. What, it's not where, enough where do you, for them, Braden. Where do you fall with those two? Okay, so Kyle Trask, I'm going with Kyle Trask over Mac Jones. I think if you put Kyle Trask, you could easily put Kyle Trask in Mac Jones's position with the structure that Alabama has on offense, and he would do just fine. And in my opinion, would outplay Mac Jones in that if they were in the same scenario. I think he already is, even in his own. That being said, Mac Jones is like Mr. Reliable. He is very good. Very good. I'm still picking Kyle Trask. When it comes to Kyle Pitts and Devontae Smith, the reason... Okay, so let me disagree with you here, and then I'll go back. So with Sarkeesian and Mullen, I know you're saying play calling, and when you are coming to when you talk about creativity, I see where you're coming from on the Dan Mullen side. But if you're picking offensive schema, don't you have to take everything into account? For that reason, I'm taking Sarkeesian on between those two. So when it comes to creativity, I understand... Dan Mullen, super fun to watch. Never know what's going to happen. There's all sorts of different, how many different receivers they've used. It's all over the place. You just never know what to expect. It's fun. Sarkeesian, though, when you talk about offensive scheme, don't you have to take everything into account, though? Because on that side, I mean, the line is still part of Sark's offense. So for that reason, if you're taking the whole, like, offensive scheme, i got to go with Steve Sarkeesian, but I'm still taking Kyle Pitts and Kyle Trask. And I'm taking Alabama overall 
because remember at the beginning of the season where I thought I said I thought Alabama might be able to do this unscathed and you were like no everybody's it's gonna everybody's gonna have a loss so sure. for that reason pride bragging rights and you know <laughs> I'm using my head over my heart I think Alabama will will come out on top just because the way everything works together but when you're talking about Kyle Pitts and Devontae Smith uh, specifically, they're both huge threats, but, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, Braden, but when you try to, the allocation of resources when you're trying to double team a tight end, doesn't that require more resources in a risky way? Because he may not, if, you're, if you double team Devontae Smith, you know he's a receiving target. Like, you know he's potentially a receiving target. If you double team Kyle Pitts, you don't know if the play was drawn up that way. You know, he, yeah, he could be I, filling other roles. So isn't that allocation of resources make it a little bit tougher to play against Kyle Pitts? Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to say it, allocation of resources. Uh, there's a lot to react to here because I think you're dead wrong about Sarkeesian, but we'll get to that. It's okay. You're rooting for Bama to be undefeated because you want me to be dead wrong. It's okay. I mean, um, I love a Cinderella story, but I like if Dan being right had... over you way more than a Cinderella story. <laughs> that, that's true. I, I think you're right. It's harder. It, Kyle Pitts is a far greater mismatch when you're trying to scheme for him, if you're trying to put a guy on him or two, it is far more difficult. You probably need a big athletic safety that most teams don't have. You might need a big athletic corner that most teams don't have. You might need a combination of that. You might need a really explosive linebacker like Clemson had with Isaiah Simmons who can drop into coverage and, and cover him. I, I don't, first of all, I don't think anyone can cover him. I, you know, Devonte Smith is, you know, he's a little undersized. He is a fantastic player. I voted for him number two in the Bolitnikoff Award, which, again, we'll have to discuss in a second because that's also something Florida and Alabama fans are arguing right now because I think Devontae Smith is the best receiver in America, but I think Kyle Pitts is the best pass-catching weapon in America. So I don't know what I should have voted for on the Bolitnikoff Award because they were both on my ballot, so I had to make a tough call. I, I think you're right. It is harder to match up with Kyle Pitts than it is Devontae Smith. Now, back to your scheme question, and this also is part of the reason – I like Kyle Pitts over Devontae Smith. Sark does a great job scheming with his running game to get Devontae Smith wide open all the time. He is wide open all the time. Some of that's Devontae Smith being great. Some of that's Mac Jones. Some of that's the Alabama scheme. But he's there's a lot of times where he's like six, eight yards behind people, and you're going, how in God's name did that happen? And some of that's Sark being really good. I think when I say creative, I don't mean quirky. I don't mean just fun to watch. I mean unstoppable. That's what I mean when I say creative with Dan Mullen. If Dan Mullen had Alabama's offensive line, I think Florida is undefeated right now and they might be number one in America. Like I, that's how good Alabama's offensive line is. And that's how good I think Dan Mullen is. Steve Sarkeesian is a solid offensive mind. He's not, I don't, I don't view him as like some innovative, like world thinker about offense. I view Dan Mullen as the best offensive mind in America. So maybe that's just me. And it's just my opinion, but that's why I have Dan Mullen sort of where I have him is, you know, I think his scheme is unstoppable. He can line up with, against any defense, against any formation, against any strength or weakness, and he will play off of that because he's so creative and find ways to get his pieces open. You know, he's, he's running running backs on wheel routes against Georgia and just all day Georgia couldn't cover it, like all day. There's still scheme involved in the offensive line though, Braden, so don't, don't discredit those guys. You're going to have – get me mad at you, Sam Pittman. No, no. I, <laughs> it's about personnel to me. Like the, the reason Alabama's offense is so good is, not, in my opinion, not because Steve Sarkeesian is brilliant, but because their dudes are better than everybody else's. <laughs> it, it, like 
that helps. Flor- Florida's offensive line is just a big – that's the question mark. I mean, that's where we were concerned about Florida's offense is, is can they run the football against Alabama? We said it on this show like 12 times. Like Alabama can play any style of game it wants because of its offensive line. Florida kind of has to play with the Kyle Trask passing attack, using running backs in creative ways. Like it's – they're just not as good. On, on as per, from a personnel standpoint along the offensive line. And that's where I think Alabama is the team that I'm picking to win. I think Florida fans are excited about their team for the, all the right reasons. But I think, you know, 48-38 Alabama. Like, I, I think Florida's going to score. I think Florida will score a boatload of points. But I think to all you people that have been hearing me say so many positive things about Florida all season long, you're in for a rude awakening when championship week rolls around and I'm picking Alabama the whole time. So. I wish we had put some stipulations on the unscathed bet so that I won something when Alabama wins. It's all about you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I so here's so the question about voting for Kyle Pitts for the Bolitnikoff. The Bolitnikoff Award is for the best wide receiver in America. The John Mackey Award is for the best tight end in America. Kyle Pitts is on the ballot for both of them. I I voted for Kyle Pitts, number one, in the Bolitnikoff Award, Devontae Smith, number two, and Elijah Moore, number three. And that is not being an SEC homer. Those are the three guys that I think are the best receiving weapons in college football. All three of them happen to play in the SEC. I just think I would pick Kyle Pitts over Smith, so I might vote for him for the Heisman. (laughs) I mean, if if, if you're only taking into account his performance as a receiver and you still think that, then you probably did the right thing, right? Are you letting things affect you, other abilities he has, you know, that aren't, you know, just receiving? No, it's it's about the title and, like, spreading the wealth. Kyle Pitts is going to win the John Mackey Award for the best tight end in America. Like, just just go ahead and just lock that up. Should we then spread the wealth and say, no, 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 define receiver as just receiver, and you have to, you have to vote for just a guy who's a receiver, in which case I would have said don't put Kyle Pitts on the ballot. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yes, and it brings me to another question slash issue I ran into last night. Two things. Are there, well, you kind of just answered this. Are there ulterior motives when, like you maybe just mentioned, when you're voting for something? Like, is there ever a reason someone votes for someone just because they come from a certain team or just because they already voted, didn't vote, won't vote for them because they already voted for them for something else? Are there ulterior motives and also spell ulterior? Ulterior motives? Yeah. U-L-T-E-R-I-O-R. I have spent my- Did I get en- that right? Yes. I have spent my entire life thinking it was ulterior. Yeah. And I was frantically typing, like just like typing it and it was like spitting it back to me. And I was like typing it again and spitting it back to me. And I was like- All intensive purposes or all intents and purposes? Well, it's the second one, and I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm actually a really good speller, so this upset me. It's ulterior. I hope that ruins someone else's life so I can take <laughs> someone down with me. The, the, the other one is uh, we're at the quarter pole right now in the NFL season, and, and people, don't, people think that you're at the quarter pole when you're at the beginning quarter of the season. It's the, the quarter pole in horse racing is the final quarter mile of the race. So th- right now the NFL has played roughly 12 games. That is the quarter pole of the season. And everyone uses it back at the beginning of the year after the first four games. And I don't know why that one bothers me. Also champing at the bit because everyone uses gators. Isn't it chomping? It, champing is the is correct term. You ch- a horse champs at the bit. 
But Florida Gator writers use the phrase and the headline chomping at the bit all the time because Gators chomp. And so what has happened is people think the terminology is chomping at the bit, but that's not the phrase. It's a horse racing phrase. This is your horse racing non sequitur on the show today. How Um, did we get here? Horses champ at the bit when they're ready to run. And so you, you don't chomp at the bit, you champ at the bit. And the quarter pole is not at the, the goddamn beginning of the season. It's at the effing end of the season. You know what my favorite phrase is you've said this whole time? (laughs) My favorite phrase you've said today is, quote, because gators chomp. (laughs) That's that's a thing, right? That happens. It's just funny out of context. Okay. They they I don't know. Let's get back on track. I'm I'm gonna do a whole video about how how did we get here? Florida man. It's just gonna be us talking about God knows what. All right, you wanna get to coordinators uh, before we get to head coaches? What do you think? Let's do it. Yeah, right. um, the title of this segment is Evolve or Die. That's the, that's the title of this segment. It's science. Kentucky has fired offensive coordinator Eddie Grand, who was widely respected in, in college football nationally amongst experts as a pretty good offensive mind. I, they fired Eddie Grand, the offensive coordinator. Darren Henshaw, as well, I believe, was fired off of that coaching staff. So now they're looking for a, a new offensive staff. Um, a lot of the names you're hearing for that job are coming from the NFL ranks, which I think is really interesting. Tennessee, Jim Chaney, I think they need to move on Jim Chaney. I think Jim Chaney has been a bad hire from the beginning. Clearly, none of the things you've hired him to do, he's done. I think LSU has some serious soul-searching to do with Bo Pelini and the LSU defense. I've got a name for them that they need to go hire. Um, but let's start with Kentucky and Tennessee offensively. Just before we talk names, what, philosophically, what do you think these teams should be doing? Like, I think Vanderbilt should try something different because you can't do what Florida and Georgia does at Vanderbilt. Kentucky's kind of in that same boat to some degree. I have a question before we go there, which is, with Eddie Grand being someone that's so well-liked, is that, at what point does a coaching staff have to make moves almost, you know, beat the administration to the punch on certain things? Do you think that comes into play in any of these situations? Just, you know, trying to make a change before someone comes for them? Or are we not oh, yeah, that yeah. close? We're not, we're not at all close with Kentucky on this. Right, not with um, Kentucky, I agree. But with, with Tennessee, we are. There, there's, no, there's no question. And, and let's be honest, like hating your offensive coordinator in the SEC is like as big a pastime as like tailgating. Like it's, it's part of the job. Like you, you hate your offensive coordinator and you want him fired and then the coach fires him. And then the next step is you fire the coach. Mark Stoops is not in any of that trouble, but th- their offense they're, they're you know, they're like the worst passing offense in the sec. They've been really, really bad. They've not developed a quarterback. I like what Eddie Grant has done with his personnel. I just don't know if Kentucky's ever going to have the personnel to run, maybe what would, you know, allow his system to flourish. I, that's my question is what should Kentucky be? I know what I think Tennessee should be. Tennessee should be what Florida is, what Alabama is, what LSU is, what last year under Joe Brady. Like Tennessee should be dynamic, explosive, big time quarterback, weapons around, good offensive. Like they should be like one of the big boys. Kentucky's sort of in this in between territory with like South Carolina and Arkansas and Missouri, where you might need to try something a little different. And I'm okay if they try something a little different. I don't know if the names I'm seeing, you know, Shane Waldron, the Rams quarterback's coach, you know, Press Taylor, the Eagles quarterback's coach, Pep Hamilton, of course, who was at Stanford in college and has been with the Colts and now the Chargers. You know, Ken Dorsey doesn't get me going. Like, I've seen a lot of NFL names that just don't do it for me. Some of them might be really, really good names for Kentucky, but I don't know, you know, where they're going to go with that. I just just don't know what they should be if you're Kentucky. They're in the middle to me. To me... 
I just associate them with their size and strength to just be, I picture them in an ideal world being like an old school Alabama, just with their size and strength and just snap the ball, run it straight down your throat kind of deal. I just don't picture them with that dynamic, you know, quarterback receiving chemistry. I Maybe that's just because I haven't seen it from them. I've seen glimpses of it from other people, but I don't remember seeing that from Kentucky. So, but I feel like with what they already have and their, you know, strength and size to me, finding really powerful, you know, running backs and continue to have that strength on the line and just try to cram it down people's throats. I, I actually kind of agree with you because the last time we Shocking. saw it, you know, Andre Woodson was pretty good in like under in the mid 2000s when they had Jacob Tammy and but the Tim Couch teams with the air raid, you know, Hal Mummy and, 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 and Mike Leach in the late 90s. So that would have been the last time you truly saw like dynamic weaponry being, you know, slinging it all around at Kentucky. Here's the thing. And it's funny you brought up like old school Alabama. One of the best Kentucky teams we've seen in the last few years was when they lost their starting quarterback and had to put a receiver at quarterback and run the triple option. And they, they're great at developing offensive linemen. They're great at developing running backs, like you've said. So I'm kind of with you. I think you can be pretty good at Kentucky, win seven or eight games, you know, if you want to line up and and sort of be that old eye formation, kind of the way the Ravens have twisted the NFL a little bit because they're going back to different old school formations and stuff, and it's taken a while for them to catch back up because now nobody sees fullbacks and tight ends and trapping and pulling guards and all this other stuff. Like, it's because it's so spread out, I, I don't mind that strategy. I think if you're Tennessee or on offense, I think if you're Tennessee, you need to you need to be more like Dan Mullen's offense, more like Nick Saban's offense, and more like Joe Brady and LSU's offense from 2019. I think you've got to evolve. Kirby Smart's trying to evolve with Todd Munkin. I think you've got to evolve if you're Tennessee and be more dynamic because you've got to go get a star quarterback to win a championship in the SEC. I don't think Kentucky's in that ballpark. They absolutely need someone that's a franchise guy, not like piecing things together. I feel like things have been just kind of glued together, hoping it works. Even when their line is supposed to be great, they have this quarterback option. Like we think it'll work, but we're not really sure. Or we may start someone else this week or whatever. And you may know more about this new prospect they have, Braden, than I do. I mean, we're trying. They've got, they'll have some recruits. And I know they have a true freshman quarterback who just started and is going to start the next couple of games, who was highly touted coming out of Georgia and Harrison Bailey, and he's looks like he's going to be the guy moving forward. I'll give you some of the names I want over Jim okay. Chaney. I got no problem with that. Um, now, I think the perfect offense is sort of the the Dan Mullen offense, as I've said many, many times. But I think the the Oklahoma offense, which is a power spread, which is built on power running football with a spread element in a passing attack, I think is the most unstoppable offense in college football. It's what Alabama runs. It's what Florida runs to some degree. I like a little bit more power in my offense than, than Florida has, but like Joe Moorhead at Oregon, for example, I think runs a power spread that I think would be perfect at Tennessee. He used to actually be the head coach at Mississippi state. I don't think he fits in the sec. Mike Bobo, you know, if he's out of work, could be the coordinator at South Carolina for Shane Beamer. Uh, Andy Ludwig used to be at Vanderbilt. He's now at Utah, really good coordinator. I think Graham Harrell is a guy that I would go get from USC, make the phone call, has a relationship with T Martin and is a guy that they're going to run more of a true spread. But if you can, if you're Jeremy Pruitt, you sort of lean on him a little bit and say, I want some power elements into your offense. Uh, Kendall Bryles at Arkansas is a guy you, you could potentially go higher. I don't know if you want a Bryles on your staff or not, but he's very good. He won't leave Pitt. 
Uh, he won't leave Pitt. I, <laughs> Phil Longo at North Carolina, that offense is very simple. I don't think he's a candidate. They like to just rely on their talent and speed and just chuck it around, but they do want to run the football, which I like from him. So there's a power spread element there. That That's the, the phraseology I would use is this power spread. It's what Gus Malzahn ran at Auburn. It's what Tebow ran at Florida. It's what Alabama, LSU, and, and Florida are running now. It's what Georgia was trying to evolve into. That is what I would want to see from Tennessee. You have a whole, you got the whole spread. You got the whole list yeah, going. Baby. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's called research. I don't, <laughs> was that supposed to be a diss? I, I, I don't, I'm is not sure. What, I don't know what a diss is. I haven't used that word in a decade, Aaron. So my hair looks pretty good though. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to turn Way out. Way better than the stuff. Tennessee offense. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Aaron's maybe, favorite Tennessee offense. Sp- speaking of, we might get a, a fringe bowl. We might get Fringe Bowl, although Vanderbilt is down to like 11 players. From what I've been told by people around the program, Aaron, is that if this wasn't Tennessee and if it wasn't at the end of the season, this game would not be happening. But they're going to try to make it because it's basically the end of the year. They're going to try to finish the season. And because it's Tennessee, they want to try to play. If I'm a Tennessee fan, that doesn't make me feel particularly good about a W if they go win. I would say that's you're not really beating an actual football team right now. They've got like 43 dudes. So um, but there is a fringe bowl coming between your alma mater and mine potentially this weekend. Maybe. Can you please do the drunken rant? People have been asking for it on Twitter and this would be the perfect week. Gator Mike shout out to Gator Mike has been asking for it. Come, I know, but the other, as well as others, just. <laughs> there have been many, <laughs> many have reported, many have reported that we'd like to do a drunken rant. People no, are please, saying, please. people are saying. We could both do, I'll, I don't want to really do it. We could both do it. Okay. If if you are willing to join the party, I would be willing to join the party as well. Let's do it. I, I think it needs to be. But then to, it's not going to be a you and me thing every week. This is me no, jumping. No, no, no. It's one time me. thing. You and I can do it. I think it needs to be done together, but socially distanced. Okay. Is that fair? Yep. <laughs> All right. LSU. I got a name for LSU. And I think there's one name on the list I want to go hire if I'm LSU to get rid of Bo Pelini. I want to go hire Jim Leonard. You went and hired a Wisconsin coordinator last time, Dave Aranda. It worked. Go hire Jim Leonard. I think he is the best rising star defensive coordinator in all of college football. That is his alma mater at Wisconsin, so it's going to be hard to pry him away. But go f- pay all the money you, you can. P- give just all the money you can to Bo Pelini to go away because it is not going to work, even in normal times, even with all your players back. Go get a, a, an elite-level defensive coordinator because you are LSU. They can. They have the money to do it. It's been clear. I mean, it's been clear from the jump that Bo Pelini was not a fit. I know it's worked other places, but it's not working at LSU. Not a lot's working at LSU currently. And you're right. You got to wipe your hand, clean your hands and move on. All right. So that's my, that's our coaching spiel. We'll get to Shane Beamer and Vanderbilt's coaching search in just a second. Again, you'll hear from Josh McQuiston of Soonerscoop.com covering Oklahoma, who will give you a really thorough breakdown of who Shane Beamer is as a coach, strengths and weaknesses, the things he was responsible for at Oklahoma, the things, the questions and concerns he has about him as a head coach, really, really fun conversation we had with Josh. We'll get to that in a second, but the fringe bowl part two is now Sam Pittman versus Eli Drinkwitz, because I think Eli Drinkwitz is your coach of the year in the SEC at Missouri after winning that unbelievably awesome game against Arkansas. They get Georgia this weekend at home. Your boy gets Alabama this weekend at home. So I think my guy's got a better chance of winning. My guy just beat your guy and my guy's got five wins in the SEC already. First of all, there's loyalty involved in this, Braden, and I've been loyal. This is brand new for you. You, this could be an infatuation period. I'm a you lifelong diehard. No, I'm lifelong diehard. You don't know if it's real love. No, you don't. You haven't been talking about him at all this season, really. You've been Life, lifelong diehard, Missouri fan. 
well, I haven't heard a lot of chatter about Eli Drinkwitz or Missouri from you this year. So Connor Basilac, I've been I've been wooing all over. I've been I've been uh, flummoxed over Connor Basilac. I get I, I look at Connor Bas I, I watch film of Connor Basilac and I get a little I go a little verklempt. It's always been that way. Him and Roman Yossi. No, this is all. <laughs> this is this is new. It's just infatuation. You just need to make sure that when the spark the butterflies fl- like come down. If you guys still really care about each other, like Sam and I do. How many dates does it take for you to no longer have butterflies? One. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the answer I was expecting. Um, listen, scoreboard, who won the game? Not talking about that. It's, it's more than that. Was around. that not the best, like, five, eight minutes of an end of a game you've ever seen, though? Like, honestly, that was just awesome. It was it was probably one of the most exciting five to eight minute spans we've seen all season, <laughs> wouldn't you say? I mean, certainly from Arkansas. I mean, they're very boring. I would have. You are so <laughs> on one today, and I don't appreciate it. Well, I just look. I'm a I'm a I'm a lifelong diehard Missouri Tigers fan, and it's my week to gloat because you're such a you've been a lifelong Razorbacks fan your whole life, and now I get to gloat because of my my squad beat your squad. So well. In dog years, I've definitely been a Razorback fan longer. And this... And that's what counts. That's true. Yeah, dog years is what counts. And it's also, like, just longer in general, considering this started for you two days ago. No, it didn't. I've been in love with Connor Basilak for weeks, okay? It's been weeks. Okay. Just... But I haven't left the house in longer than that, so it's... It feels... You're being misleading. Just like we talked about, we don't like coaches not being transparent or being misleading in press conferences. Here you go. Fair enough. All right. Two, two quick things before we get to Shane Beamer. By the way, I don't think Arkansas has a chance to beat Alabama this week, but I am interested in that game. I do not think Missouri is going to beat Georgia this week, but I am interested in that game. I think they both could make it interesting in the first half. Uh, and I like Missouri's chances more because of Eli Drinkwitz and Connor Basilak. You know, not responding to you. My, my guys. I think they're going to play decently against Georgia at home. I think there's a chance. I think they'll play decently as well. I'm just sick of talking about this with you. Okay. If you don't want to talk about the SEC Coach of the Year – in 2020, that's fine. Sam it's Pittman. okay. You jump ship. You said this three weeks ago. You said it was going to be Sam Pittman. I heard you. Well, he's losing game. The records say, I'm going to put it in the video. You can't do anything about it because I had the video. So I'm yeah. going to put a clip of you saying that Sam Pittman should be coach of the year right next to you talking about how you're in love with Eli Drinkwitz and everyone's going to know you're a fake. Okay. You do know that things change mocks, right? Like, you know, that love doesn't. What I'm, what I'm saying? Yes, it does. Like, are you what saying that? Are you suggesting that who I who I vote who I would vote for for the Heisman in week three is who I have to stick with at the end of the year? Is that what you're suggesting? I don't know. Yeah, I just I'm just that argument upset. fell apart pretty quickly. No, it didn't. It didn't fall apart. It's just a loyalty factor that you obviously don't have, so I can't explain it to you. Um, all right, Shane Beamer is your new head coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks. Now we'll talk Vanderbilt coaching search, and I've got a new college football tradition. That is just my favorite new holiday tradition. We'll talk about that after we hear from Josh McQuiston. But first, your thoughts, Aaron, when you saw that Shane Beamer was being hired, what was the first thing that sort of popped into your mind when he got the job as the new head coach for the South Carolina Gamecocks? My first thought was that I was happy for the players because I think this is a good fit for them. And, you know, he is he's someone that will change a program from the inside out. And that hopefully will result in wins for the Gamecocks. If it does, the fan base will be fine. I do think that the fan base really wanted like a great leader 
almost said dear leader, which would have been a North Korea reference. Didn't mean to do that, but someone to follow, but just someone to get excited about. I don't necessarily think this has the pizzazz that some of the other options would have had, but the most important thing is that it's working inside the locker room. And I think that Shane Beamer will work inside the locker room. And I think that he'll be able to recruit guys and get guys in there that will help them win. I mean, he already has the despising Clemson down. I think he, he didn't even, he wouldn't even name him in his press conference. It was like Voldemort. He's like, you mentioned that program in the upstate. Um, so yeah. that is, it, it, it'll work. It's just maybe not as exciting in this very moment for them, but as long as they win, they're going to show up 90,000 strong regardless. So, you know, once they, once he gets some W's under his belt, the, the Gamecock fan base will be all good to go. He has zero play calling experience. He's never called <laughs> plays on offense or defense. He has never been a head coach. There are two major questions. All the other stuff feels right. All the other stuff looks right. All the other stuff checks boxes, like you talked about. player. And you're going to hear Josh McQuiston talk a lot about who Shane Beamer was at Oklahoma. So South Carolina fans, I, please listen to the interview. I think you're going to really get a, some good insight into who your new head coach is. Uh, and for the rest of you SEC fans, get an idea of, of what they, they hired. I'm with you. I don't think it's a very sexy hire. Um, and I've been asked a lot if his last name was – you know, a different last name. If he wasn't the son of legendary hall of famer, Frank Beamer, would he have gotten the job? And I, I think the answer is yes, actually. It certainly helps to have that on your reference, <laughs> you know, on your, on your resume there. But I, here's the name I would compare Shane Beamer to. To me, he is Jeff Collins, who is the head coach at Georgia tech. And, and I'll quickly try to explain Jeff Collins. He's from the state of Georgia. He, he was at Georgia tech as a recruiting coordinator for the best classes in Georgia Tech history, 03, 04, 05, he recruited Calvin Johnson, Derek Morgan, all these guys that went on to play in the NFL. He went away, was a coordinator, got all the way to Temple, was the head coach at Temple for two years, and that is the biggest difference between Shane Beamer and Jeff Collins is that he had experience as a head coach at Temple. But Shane Beamer is from the state of South Carolina, who was on the coaching staff about 10 years ago, who recruited the best classes in South Carolina history, from that in that 07 to 2010 range when he was landing big time classes and they, they actually built 10 win seasons at South Carolina for the first time ever. There's a, to me, there's a lot of similarities between these two guys. You know, he's coming home to, to the Palmetto state, great recruiting coordinator on the staff. The difference is, is that Jeff Collins had head coaching experience. That's the only difference. And so I, and I like the Jeff Collins hire at Georgia tech. I, I just, it's not sexy. And, and there's also a lot of giant question marks because we don't know if you've never called plays and you've never been a head coach, you simply cannot answer those questions until you actually do it. So that would be my spiel on Shane Beamer. I will let Josh McQuiston take care of the rest. Love that. I mean, you got to get a good staff underneath you. And I, I wasn't on the, the Josh McQuiston interview, but you have to have, you have to know who to hire and you have to be the CEO and then let your other executives do their do their work underneath you. So if you can get the right people in place um, and, you know, get the players rallied behind them, then as long as you can admit to what you don't know and put people in place that do, then you're doing your job. Exactly. And that's a huge part of the first priority for Shane Beamer is going to be Mike Bobo and who's he going to retain? What's the staff look like? That's going to be critical. Um, but we'll let Josh McQuiston handle that. We'll get to the Vandy coaching search and a new college football holiday tradition for us to discuss after the interview. But uh, without further ado, let's learn about Shane Beamer, the South Carolina new head football coach from Josh McQuiston of Soonerscoop.com.
Josh, first, let's talk about Shane Beamer, the guy. Obviously very well covered, uh, the last name and everything. Sort of give us a, a, some insight into his personality, w- you know, what makes him tick, what kind of coach is he from, from like a broad perspective? Well, I, I think he is – he's definitely – I mean, he's the new age coach. He is a player's coach. The guys love him. And really, I think sometimes – and you know it too, Braden. like you get these guys that are that way – and you can sometimes get almost animosity from other coaches, from people within the staff that they connect so well. And I think sometimes that rubs other coaches the wrong way. But you can't talk to anybody around that program that doesn't love Shane Beamer. I mean, he's only been there for a couple of years, but is a guy that is very well liked, very well respected. And I, I thought, you know, when he was hired and I would talk to people at Georgia, there was a almost a ho-hum feeling about it. Like, oh, you know, no big deal. That I, there wasn't this uh, feeling that I get when I talk to people at Oklahoma about his departure. Not that, that he's irreplaceable. You know, Oklahoma knows that they can go get another good target. But there is definitely a – this was a guy that was a glue guy in our, in our staff, in our, uh, you know, in our locker room. They, Shane Beamer is a guy that really, like I said, connects well with players. I know watching some of his early press conference, a lot of people came away. He's very energetic. I mean, like those things that, that came off – they're real. I mean, that, that's who he is. That's, that's what he's about. And he's one of those guys that whether he's with Lincoln Riley or with some of the support staff, he engages people really naturally. I mean, you can t- he's a coach's kid. I mean, he knows how to be in a room and kind of command that room. And I think that shows up a lot. Well, and that, that's going to be my second question here, Josh, is what, you know, what were the things that he was responsible for at Oklahoma? Because it's one thing to be re- really relatable with young people, be a good recruiter, you know, the, the, this sport is chock full of guys that can, you know, relate with recruits, do a good job on the trail, glue guy in the locker room, really good at practice, and have no clue how to be a CEO of a $100 million football program. Those are very different things. So g- give us some of the things that he did from, from like a, an actual managerial standpoint of the team itself that sort of he gets credit for, some of his strengths. What, what were the things that you would look at that Oklahoma football team and say, you know, Shane Beamer has his fingerprints all over that? Yeah, you know, the thing I think you start with as, you know, just strictly his position. He was the tight ends coach. And I know in a lot of ways that's going to seem very small. The way Oklahoma uses it, it's tight ends, it's H-backs. I mean, you're talking about guys like Jeremiah Hall, Braden Willis, Austin Stogner. I mean, some of Oklahoma's more focal guys, and, and these are players that are not, you know, OU doesn't run one tight end out there or one H-back. They usually have multiple guys on the field, run a lot of different formations, and – you know, I would say it, 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 you could argue the defensive line, but with that exception, it's probably the best room on Oklahoma's campus right now as far as depth, talent, uh, really a lot of multi-skilled players, guys doing a lot of different things. You've got Jeremiah Hall, who is sometimes a tight end. Sometimes he's even in the slot. Sometimes he's an H-back. Uh, Austin Sogner is a pure, you know, your prototypical tight end. So he's provided a lot of flexibility to that offense and what he does. Obviously, also the special teams coordinator, Oklahoma has one of the best kickers in the country in Gabe Burkich. Um, the punting game's been a little shaky at times. You have to realize that. But at the same time, like I said, when you look at the breadth of his work, I think it's been very good. I, I think he's done a nice job in both the roles he's been handed. And then as a recruiter, Obviously, a lot of connections to the area he's now going to be in, but he has built Oklahoma a foothold in the Washington, D.C. area, which has become obviously incredibly talent-rich. 
Uh, Caleb Williams, that was, a, you know, the, the five-star quarterback, number three, number five player in the country on Rivals, is a guy that is – Shane Beamer set that groundwork in place. He, he was the guy that had the relationships. He started that. And then, obviously, Lincoln Riley took over, and, you know, there's a lot to like there. But it was, it was largely Shane Beamer that's given Oklahoma this foothold in this region that they've never recruited before, and now we're starting to land some of the best players from there. Do you have any concept of what his offensive philosophy – does it fall in line with Lincoln Riley? Is it complementary to Lincoln Riley? Is it more Frank – you know, more of his father in Virginia Tech and the way their, their offense was run for years? Like, what, what, what sort of things can you expect from him stylistically on, on a football field? To me, that's the really interesting question because you just don't know. He's a guy that's been a part of it. He's in the rooms. But this is one of those things where you're getting a hire – that, like I said, I think has a lot of high-end potential, but there's risk there because you don't know. I mean, he's never run an offense. He's never run a defense, or at least hasn't recently. So you don't know what you're going to get out of those situations. But you'd have to think, being around Lincoln Riley, there's going to be some, some strong connection to what he's seen, what he's been doing the last few years, seeing all the success that Oklahoma has had. So uh, – it would be crazy to me if you didn't see some of that. But at the same time, this is not a guy that, that cut his teeth under Lincoln Riley. I mean, he, he's been around a lot of great coaches, a lot of good minds. I would expect him to be pretty open to this is what our personnel is, this is how we're going to run, which is, uh, again, what Lincoln Riley has been about. We know that what they were doing last year with Jalen Hurts has no correlation to what they're doing with Spencer Rattler this year. So uh, I think he is going to be a guy that understands – and has been around it enough to know, okay, this is what we have. We're going to be a run-heavy team. We've got an offensive line. We're going to bully people. Okay, we've got a quarterback that can move. We're going to do some bootleg. We're going to work some other stuff in. I don't think – I think it's one of his – you know, like I said earlier, there's a question mark about it, but it can also be a strength because I don't think he's tied to one concept. I think he can yeah. be open to really allow himself to let his personnel or let his scheme fit his personnel. All right, uh, Josh, you now work in South Carolina for whatever website slash newspaper, and you're writing the column about the risks, the question marks, the unknowns about Shane Beamer, first-time head football coach at South Carolina. What, what are your big bullet points in that, in that story? I, I, I think it's I, – I think there's two things. There's going to be staff building, which I think he'll do very well at, but we just don't know because he's never even had to pit – put an offensive staff together, a defensive staff together. Now he's got to do the whole thing. He's got to build support staff. And he's got to do it in this crazy era that we're living in where people are going to be more reticent about coming in and doing interviews and all, all these things that make life more difficult for a new head coach right now. So he has to juggle that. And the other is just like I said, you don't know what his beliefs are in anything. Like, I mean, he – and it's not – I don't mean that as a slight to him. We just don't know. We don't know yeah. what he's going to want to do offensively. Is he going to let some of what I, what I was talking about, Oklahoma with a lot of two tight end, a lot of H-back stuff, a lot of, you know, 22 personnel. I mean, they, they do a lot of different stuff. Are they going uh, – excuse me, 12 personnel. Are they going to do some stuff where they um, – uh, allow themselves a little versatility in their in their uh, alignments in their personnel groupings that's been a big thing for Lincoln Riley is that what Shane Beamer brings is he going to try to recreate the wheel defensively when I think we all know that hasn't been South Carolina's problem 
So, like I said, I, I think one of his weaknesses could end up being one of his strengths that he can allow himself to go in whatever direction the wind kind of takes him. But at the same time, you've got to have some things that you're built around, and we just don't know what those are with Shane Beaver. How upset are Oklahoma fans that he's no longer on their staff? I think there is. I, I, I really – like I said, he was a guy that came off and connected really well with people, very good social media presence, you know, talked to players, talked to coaches, was out there, you know, connecting with fans. And obviously, with a name like Beamer, Oklahoma fans know him, maybe even if they shouldn't, they know him better than a lot of other assistants on that staff because it's a name they grew up and are familiar with. So I, I think there is some definite um, – disappointment uh, you know obviously they understand I mean it's, it's not a negative thing but they understand why he would make that move but they'd like him to stay on the staff because as I said he's really helped them establish some strongholds in recruiting and has at the same time built a position group that's as good as any they've had on campus in a while. Josh always a pleasure my friend thank you so much for joining us we do appreciate it. Hey enjoyed it Braden. Special thanks to Josh McQuiston for hanging out with us today from Soonerscoop.com. Going outside the footprint, Aaron, to bring somebody in to give us insight onto who Shane Beamer is. Again, recruiting, players coach, you know, all the same questions that we talked about. We don't know about his play calling. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I think you nailed it. It's He's a culture players guy inside the locker room, but not super sexy outside of the locker room. We'll, we'll see if that combination works, and we'll see if he knows what he's doing. But South Carolina, got a new guy in charge. Always fun. What's your alma mater going to do? I wish I knew. What do you want them to do? I'd love to see Vanderbilt hire Jamie Chadwell. I think the he's young. He is exciting. He brought a program up. Has some NCAA violations in his background. I think from a coaching perspective, I'd like it to be him. I also don't want any trouble. I've been through things. You know, I've been around the program um, or in school when things went down. And nothing to me is worth that. And nothing to Vanderbilt, I don't think, is worth that. So for that reason, I think they'll go another direction. But um, without those violations, I would have said him. Um, I I think South Carolina in the state – never really fully looked at Jamie Chadwell because of some of those issues. And they weren't, they, these aren't ser- super serious issues, but they've only been a program for a few years. There's, they, they know him very well in the state of South Carolina and they chose not to go with him. Let's just, you know what I'm saying? Like they, Will Healy's my guy for the, for the Vanderbilt job. That's the guy I want. He's from the state of Tennessee. Uncle played at Vanderbilt, grew up a Vanderbilt fan. He is James Franklin without any of the baggage. He's, that's true. You said that, which that's exciting. That statement is exciting to me and I have not followed Will Healy through his whole career but I have heard great things especially when you say stuff like that something that someone Vanderbilt fans can rally around that'll be transparent they can get excited about however you have said before and I'd like to know if you still feel this way do you think they'll go with Clark Lee yes I think that's who they'll hire Um, I think that's the direction they will go and maybe I'm I don't think it's a bad hire I think there's plenty of reasons he's he's an alumni uh, very good defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. I'll compare this to, I'll compare Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf to Derek Mason and Clark Lee, let's say. Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf interviewed in 98. They were basically even prospects. Peyton Manning showed up with a 400 page binder of every single thing he was going to do as your starting quarterback. Ryan Leaf showed up in like, and I'm friends with Ryan Leaf, so I can say this. I love the guy. He showed up in like a hoodie and like some, some flip flops and was like, what's up, y'all? Like that, that, <laughs> do you see the difference in, 
James Franklin showed up at Vanderbilt with the 400-page notebook yes. saying, I, I've never been a head coach before, but here's my plan for when I do have to deal with X, Y, or Z. Now we can discuss how he handled some of those things, but that's a different subject. The question is, is Clark Lee more Ryan Leaf or is he more Peyton Manning? And we just don't know. Like, does he show up to the interview with a giant plan in place for everything? Or is he a little bit more like Derek Mason, where Derek Mason, I don't think he showed up like Ryan Leaf, but I think Derek Mason wasn't really, his career aspirations weren't trying to take over a, a head coaching job. That was James Franklin's goal all along, was to, to be a head coach somewhere. And Derek Mason, I think, sort of just kind of kept moving up the ranks and he was still successful. And I, I just don't think he's the kind of guy that self-promotes. And ha- like, I don't know, this sounds like a knock on him, but I'm not, it's not a knock on him. It's just meant no, to it be- doesn't. To be the head coach of Vanderbilt and to be successful like James Franklin, not only do you need a lot of bad coaches at all the other schools in the SEC East, which happened, but you also need to have a very attention to detail organized plan. And if Clark Lee shows up like that, then I feel better. But he's never been a head coach either, just like Shane Beamer. So, And don't show up in flip-flops because no grown man should ever <laughs> wear flip-flops. I wear flip-flops six months a year. You'll have to ask me about the flip-flop graveyard sometime. But I have, But I, my feet aren't ugly, though. I don't care. I don't know what a good-looking foot looks like, but I know what a bad-looking foot looks like. Remind me when we're coming up on the on the warmer months to tell you about the flip-flop graveyard. Flip-flop graveyard. Do you, like, throw dudes' flip-flops up on the roof or something so they can't get In the them? trunk of my car, they're in a box. <laughs> All so, right, we'll, you, you, <laughs> we'll save it. We'll save it for March or April. Whenever we, uh, get, back, whenever we get vaccines. Uh, all right, my last, my last little rant here um, on the show, and I... I don't know what you think here. I love the playoff rankings. Bowl games are coming. Holiday season. It's sort of my favorite time of the year for college football. We've got championships coming. Um, but also what's, what's come about in college football is, is grown adult fans thinking that they can tell athletes what to do with their lives at this point of the season. Players sit out bowl games all the time. Dio Adingbo for Vanderbilt sat out two is, is going to sit out what could be two games, I guess. Maybe Vanderbilt might not play them, so who knows. He's going to be a draft prospect. And, you know, it's always a – it's always hilarious to me that grown adults think that they have the freedom and the right to tell a young person what to do with their lives. Just in general, like you just don't have the freedom to tell someone else what to do. But I especially love it in 2020 set against the backdrop of don't take my rights. Don't take my freedoms. Don't make me wear this mask person now getting upset and trying to lecture a young person on what they should do with their lives. You can't be both. You can't be both. You can either be the guy who says, don't take my freedoms and my rights or you can lecture a young person on quitting the team. You, you, you can't be both of them, though. You, you got to pick one. Those do seem to overlap more than you would think they would, those two, those people. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't think all fans are like this. I don't think all, no. like, and I don't think a lot of people are spewing venom at Adingbo right now on Twitter or whatever. But I did see a few people say, oh, this is what you have a scholarship for. Oh, you're quitting the team. Just very predictable, very predictable stuff. Like, again, Players sit out bowl games all the time. Leonard Fournette, Christian McCaffrey, Ed Oliver, Debo Samuel, yeah. South Carolina. Like people sit out games because of they're making a business decision for their career. And Adingbo is making a business decision for his career in the middle of a raging pandemic. You just don't have the right to tell him what to do. A lot, yeah, a career decision, a life decision. A poten- I mean, this changes the trajectory of everything. And I will say, I don't care if you're 10 and 0 or 0 and 10. If not playing in a bowl game or the whatever 
is better for your future, do it. I mean, I would trade, I would take the heat and give up my bowl game PS4 to make sure that I didn't rip a hammy right before going into the NFL draft. Like, screw everyone else. I'm doing exactly what I need to do. And guess what? The team, his teammates also want the best for him. So if your team can get behind you, everyone on Twitter should too. Here's the one time I'll, I'll d- disagree with the general thought process here, which is if your team is playing in a playoff game. If your team is playing yes. in a playoff game for a championship, then I think NFL executives can ask you how, how much do you care about winning? If you're playing in the tax slayer bowl against Baylor, I, I, I don't think an NFL executive gives a shit. Like they, they drafted Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette in the top 10. Ed Oliver was drafted in the first round. Like these guys, you know, again, this is a winless team with 40 guys left with two games during a surging pandemic. No one can blame him for wanting to shut it all down (laughs) and focus on the draft, which is the most important moment of his professional career months away from now. It's months away. It's like right around the corner. I'm with you on the only the acceptable or the caveat to this being playoff because that is just, it's just different. If the decision really doesn't make sense for you, then, I mean, I guess it's harder when it comes to playoffs, even if it's a big time bowl game, I'm saying sit if you need to. Yeah. I, I'm, the, the line for me is playoff, playoff games. If you are play, competing for a championship th- that there are some like, well, how badly do you want to be with that team? If it is for the, the, the pool and weed eater bowl, I just don't, I don't fans fans value this stuff way more than the players do. The players have to worry about their careers. And I bet that the, I would venture to say that players wouldn't opt out in playoff situations and typically don't. We've never seen it. It's never happened. Yes. Because they do that for each other, which is if a guy decides to sit out and his teammates support him in a bowl game or whatever else, they do that because they care about each other. And a guy will play in a playoff game, not only for his own, you know, dream coming true on the college level, but also because he cares about his teammates, a lot of whose career might end at that game. Yep. No, no question about it. All right. I think that does it for this week. It's such a weird finish to the year we're kind of limping to the finish games are getting canceled and postponed we got a championship game already settled we don't know if ohio state's going to be eligible we got acc canceling games just to get their their teams rest like it's such a weird finish but we are getting there and we do have alabama versus florida to look forward to so uh, all good things life is good aaron always a pleasure good to see you where can people follow you you, aaron underscore dugan on instagram or the aaron dugan on twitter there you have it. You can follow me as well at Braden Gall. Thank you all for listening at 440 Sports on Facebook and Twitter at 440 Media on Instagram as well. This is the Fringe Element. Thank you for listening, everybody. Rate, review, and subscribe right here on the 440 Sports Network. Later. Later.